Hi, listeners. I want to tell you about a cause that I'm involved with at Heritage Radio Network. HRN is celebrating its 15th year, and to celebrate, we're deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Osiris. Hey folks, I am super excited to tell you a bit about today's new sponsor, Music Masters Collective. They're a nonprofit organization that produces unique music events, providing opportunities for fans and artists to meet and collaborate in an inspired and creative atmosphere. Every week, MMC hosts different events, all with the opportunity to learn from world-class musicians like Bill Frizzell, Kurt Rosenwinkel, Julian Lodge, Mark Rabot, Wayne Krantz, O'Teal Burbridge, the Mel Carton Kids, and so many more. At an event like Alternative Guitar Summit Camp happening this August, you can expect in-depth workshops with guitar masters, once-in-a-lifetime performances, the opportunity to play alongside your favorite musicians, and a lot of fun. You'll leave this event packed full of wisdom and with a whole community of musicians to create with. This all-inclusive week in the Catskills Mountains of upstate New York is guaranteed to be magical. Scholarships are available. Spots are extremely limited. So visit www.alternativeguitarsummitcamp.com moods to learn more. Moods and Modes is presented by Osiris Media and made possible thanks to our Patreon community. To support the podcast directly, go to patreon.com slash Alex Skolnick. From Brooklyn, New York, this is Moods and Modes. I'm your host, Alex Skolnick. I'm probably best known as a professional guitarist. I'm also a writer, a photographer, and someone who occasionally gets told to keep his opinions to himself on Twitter. This podcast will involve music and guitar, but it may take us to some unexpected places as well. So, thank you for joining me, and let's do this. It's the Les Paul Show. Moods and Modes, episode 30. My name is Alex, and the sound you're hearing is that of the one and only Les Paul. When talking about Les Paul, where can one begin? Well, let's start by saying he was born this month on June 9th in 1915. So that means he would be celebrating a 107th birthday if he were still around. 
And in many senses, it feels as though Les is still around. After all, his name adorns the headstock on one of the most sought-after, influential, and widely used musical instruments on the face of the planet, the Gibson Les Paul guitar. Now, the list of very important guitar players closely identified with the Les Paul guitar would be too long to cite, but a few that come to mind are, of course, Jimmy Page, Billy Gibbons, Joe Walsh, Mike Bloomfield, Al Demiola, Slash, I could go on and on. And even luminaries not closely identified with the Les Paul as their main instrument have often owned them for occasional use. You can find pictures of Jimi Hendrix with a Les Paul. Eddie Van Halen had a prized 59, which he used on a number of tracks in the studio and occasionally live. And speaking of 59 Les Pauls, as it turns out, this episode was preceded by a re-release of our two-part tribute to Peter Green, who played what would become one of the most famous Les Pauls in the world, known as Greeny a guitar later owned by Gary Moore, and one that can be currently heard on tour with Metallica. All of which underscores the point made earlier, which is that despite being born in 1915 and closely identified with music of the 1940s and 1950s, here in the future, the year 2022, you can safely say that Les Paul is everywhere. Okay, so what to do, people? We could easily do an entire episode on the Les Paul guitar. We could do an entire episode on his music. We could easily spend an hour focusing on his innovations separate from contributing to the development of the solid body guitar and look at how he helped pave the way for studio recording as we know it. And as unique as his inventions, his innovations, and his contributions may have been, his personality was every bit as unique. He had a down-home, everyman quality, quite unexpected and disarming for somebody of his stature. He seemed to have a deep aversion to the trappings of show business and celebrity, despite uh, being on a first-name basis with royalty, whether the Hollywood type, the Washington type, the musical type, or actual royalty. And this is despite having been a huge star himself, especially with his wife, Mary Ford, as a duo appearing on television, radio, and in concert tours, and selling albums in the tens of millions. Les also had a wicked sense of humor which you'll know much more about by the end of this episode. He lived far more unassumingly than anyone would expect. In this sense, I think it's fair to make a comparison to Warren Buffett, the mega-successful billionaire that drives an affordable pickup truck and lives in a modest home in the Omaha suburbs. Similarly, Les, born in Waukesha, Wisconsin, but having spent time in Chicago, New York, and Hollywood in the 40s and 50s, ultimately settled in the charming but definitely not flashy town of Mawa, New Jersey. And it wasn't as though he went there to live out his retirement. Les and Mary Ford were still at the top of the charts. In fact, there's a letter from then Vice President Richard Nixon, this is during the Eisenhower administration, <laughs> thanking Les and Mary for their performance at the White House. And I held this letter in my hands. More on that in a moment. But the letter is addressed to their home in Mawa, New Jersey. And it's safe to say Les never retired. 
Mawa is deep enough into New Jersey to not feel like a satellite of New York City, like, say, Hoboken, Fort Lee, or Jersey City. Yet it's close enough that he was able to make a trip in every Monday night and play at the Iridium, where his presence is still deeply felt. As many of you know, the Iridium has been one of my regular venues, which is a great privilege. And one of my favorite memories is paying tribute to Les with his trio, with the great Lou Hollow, who has sadly passed on as well. And there are too many other stories to tell and so much to get to, including this crazy thing that happened recently that's going to take up quite a bit of this episode, as you'll see. <laughs> but before we get to that, uh, I just want to say a few more words about what Les meant to me. Les Paul was one of the few artists that my father and I could agree on. Growing up, uh, my father did not support me going into music. He was one of those parents that wanted his kid to have a respectful profession, not going into the arts. And uh, we, there were a lot of rough years, yet um, we saw Les Paul together in the 90s, and it was kind of a bonding moment, which had been rare up to that point. And here we were enjoying Les, who had been a big deal when he was a kid. And then a number of years later, he got to hear me play on that same stage, paying tribute to Les with the same band. And it really meant something. So Les genuinely helped bridge the gap between me and my dad. Thank you, Les. And just one more thing before we get into our big adventure coming up soon. I just want to briefly touch upon Les's music and guitar playing, which I think sometimes gets overshadowed by his associations with the development of the guitar. And before we do our quick glance at his music, I just want to mention that recording technology is something that maybe Les should get a little more attention for. Uh, after all, music started sounding better in the 50s. You know, bands didn't have to record all live in the same room. Sometimes they did. But the quality got better and there were new possibilities with overdubbing and adding tracks. And that's largely thanks to Les. So more credit there. One area where Les could use a little less credit is in guitar design. He actually did not design the Les Paul guitar, interestingly enough. I didn't know that. Uh, even on Wikipedia, this has been corrected. Quote, the guitar was designed by factory manager John Hewis and his team with input from and endorsement by guitarist Les Paul. Unquote. Now, make no mistake, the electric guitar's development would not have been what it was without Les. However, he did not do it alone. I'm going to read to you a passage from Play It Loud by Brad Talinsky, who we've had on the show, and Alan DiPerna, a chapter called The Wizard from Waukesha, all about you-know-who. Uh, quote, it's a popular misconception that Les Paul single-handedly invented the electric guitar, or at least the solid-body electric guitar. While he contributed substantially to the instrument's development, Les Paul most certainly did not invent the solid-body electric guitar, much less the electric guitar itself, unquote. It goes on to list the names of several other folks who were also tinkering trying to develop a solid-body instrument including George Beauchamp, Adolf Rickenbacker, and others. R Rickenbacker's name you obviously know from Rickenbacker Guitars. Play It Loud also describes the time Les was still living in Hollywood, and he would host a couple buddies over to drink beer and talk shop out on his patio, 
Those buddies were Paul Bigsby and Leo Fender. And this was the 40s. Those guys were still local instrument craftsmen, not nationally known. And a solid body guitar was still not commercially available. Of course, that would all change in the 50s, including Leo Fender's development of the Telecaster and later the Stratocaster and much more. Okay, so let's take a listen to Les, the guitar player. Kiss me once, then kiss me twice, then kiss me once again. It's been a long time. <laughs> Isn't that awesome? It's like we're suddenly in a movie. That's Bing Crosby, who was about as big a superstar as you could get. Mentioned alongside the likes of Bob Hope and Frank Sinatra. And for this song, the name attached was Bing Crosby with the Les Paul trio. It really helped raise Les's profile. Les's lines here remind me of an electric Django Reinhardt. Turns out the two were big fans of each other. Long, long time. So beautiful. That's a very, quote-unquote, normal guitar sound for Les. He became better known for songs in which his inventor side merged with his guitarist side. So that's one of many examples in which Les would record a part in normal pitch at half speed, but then put it at regular speed, which caused the pitch to be twice as high, taking on this quality that's kind of reminiscent of a carousel or a carnival. Here's one of my favorite examples in which the main melody is recorded with his normal tone in regular pitch, trading off with fills that were recorded at half speed and now twice as high. Nice Prokofiev quote there on Duke Ellington's Caravan. I love how it's so brilliant, and on some level he must know that he's making history, changing the game, yet he obviously does not take himself seriously at all. <laughs> His humor shines through, whether he's playing or talking. So we can think of Les's music in three main categories, beginning with the Les Paul trio of the 1940s, which is my personal favorite. It was jazzy and could fit alongside Django Reinhardt, Nat King Cole, and others. And the trio really crossed over from instrumental music by backing some of the most popular singers of the World War II era, such as the Andrews Sisters and Bing Crosby, as we heard. Now, there's nothing odd or unusual about the recordings of the Les Paul Trio. It's just nice music played by great musicians, and they recorded like anybody else by performing in the studio, playing into microphones. (laughs) 
The next category of Les's music happens a few years later, the late 40s to early 50s. By now, he's spent a lot of time tinkering in the garage, and his experimentation has found its way into the recording studio. His releases around this time are just under the name Les Paul, no longer the trio, and you can really hear him venturing into some of the earliest multi-track recording, experimentations with tape speed, and other sound effects. This is some of the music I described as carnival-like earlier. What a sound, huh? Nobody would ever confuse that for Charlie Christian or other contemporary guitarists of the day, which was part of the idea. Apparently, his mother, Evelyn Pulfus, told him she thought she heard him on the radio. And he said, Ma, I wasn't on the radio today. And she said, well, you better do something because everybody else is getting to sound like you. <laughs> well, he solved that problem. This is the first commercial release of Les's, and I believe possibly anybody, where solid body guitars were used. Now, this was not the Les Paul guitar. This is a few years before that. This was a guitar called the Log, and if you look up the Log and Les Paul, uh, you'll see a picture of it. It's a wacky experiment. He had another guitar similar called the Clunker. Both guitars are on the track. That track, by the way, is Lover, an old standard by Rogers and Hart. And there's a crazy section in the middle. I think this is one of the earliest examples of modern shredding. <laughs> Check it out. <laughs> what the? Let me just read you a quick section from Play It Loud. Quote. The arrangement's giddy, high-pitched arpeggios and crazy chromatic runs sound as if Les's guitars had inhaled a massive breath of helium. The track still comes across as delightfully bizarre today. One can only imagine how strangely it must have struck listeners in the 40s, unquote. And it goes on to describe how Les was one of the first artists to use the recording studio, not just to document a live performance, but to build audio collages track by track. Quote, this insight would go on to provide tremendous inspiration for Jimi Hendrix, Brian May of the band Queen, and a host of other classic rock guitars who employed the recording studio in this painterly way, unquote. And then it describes a young boy in Britain who heard Les Paul on the radio when he was just six years old. This young boy's name was Jeff Beck, and he heard two songs by Les Paul. The first was Lover, which we just heard. The second was this one. And that brings us to the third main category of Les's music, his period with wife Mary Ford, a duo known as America's Sweethearts. They would have their own radio show, which would be a huge hit in which they would do comedic shtick, which fit the style of the times, mixed with their music, as well as become fixtures on television, then an emerging new medium. And as mentioned earlier, they sold records in the millions. 
And on top of all that, it was a beautiful love story. Les and Mary were genuinely in love. Unfortunately, things would take a sad turn, as can happen in any relationship, yet can be all the more difficult when that relationship is directly tied to a very high-profile career in show business. It's safe to say that the 1960s were a rough period for Les. Here's another passage from Play It Loud. Quote, the advent of rock and roll had made Les Paul and Mary Ford records, such as Mockingbird Hill and Tennessee Waltz, seem hopelessly outdated and quaint. Their reign at the top of the charts was all over by 1961, and they divorced that same year. Les was dropped from Capitol Records in 62, the same year the Beatles began their rise to fame in the UK. Exacerbating these career and personal crises, Les was stricken with Meniere's disease in 1962 as well, undergoing a bone graft operation on the little finger of his left hand in an effort to combat what was becoming an increasingly severe arthritic condition, unquote. So Les disappears for a while, but he eventually comes back, I think in the 70s. And I remember reading an old issue of Guitar Player magazine that was describing an event. It might have been NAMM or some other music conference where they introduced Les Paul and the audience was surprised that he was neither A, dead or B, a guitar. And the rest, many of us know, he would reform his trio, this time with musicians generations younger, combined with contemporaries of his, such as Lou Paulo. There would be the weekly New York City shows, including Fat Tuesdays and later the Iridium. There would be high-profile filmed birthday concerts in which Les would jam with the likes of Jeff Beck, Jimmy Page, and Eddie Van Halen, to name just a few. And this continued into his 90s. In fact, he was active until almost 100 years old. And it was a perfect example of that Frank Sinatra song, That's Life, which has a line, when I find myself flat on my face, I pick myself up and get back in the race. Okay, folks, it's time to shift gears dramatically. Now, I imagine most of you listening have some familiarity with Les Paul, this being a music and guitar focused podcast. It would also be my guess that based solely on what we've covered so far in this episode, you've probably learned a thing or two about Les that you might not have known. Well, you're about to find out a whole lot more. As it turns out, a very curious and mysterious sequence of events took place quite recently. These events resulted in yours truly finding himself in 2022 in a place that could be best described as the vault of Les Paul. Mind you, it's not an actual vault. Rather, it is a quaint, unassuming suburban home where the vast majority of possessions left behind by Les are stored, split between the garage and a basement bar. You met Les Back in the early 80s, we called the police department looking for somebody to plow his driveway, and I answered the phone. <laughs> I was a cop. So I plowed his driveway, coming down his driveway after I plowed. I didn't know who he was. I didn't know who was Les Paul. That's Jim Wasaki. You're going to hear a lot more about him in a moment. So what happened was I uh, come down his driveway and I lost control and I went right through his mailbox. <laughs> Knocked it over so as any young kid would do. I, I yes. picked up the mailbox, I threw it further in the woods and I left. Because I didn't know. And uh, a week later, I get a phone call from a girl at the house. She said, Les Paul wants to see you. Right away my heart sinks in my gut because I'm thinking about the mailbox. He's going to want his money back. Can't see I all. think he's going to want to be paid for the mailbox. Sorry. <laughs> I forgot all, you know, go in the house, I meet him. Still don't know who this guy is. Oh, you gotta save this for camera, guy. Yeah. This is so all good. Right. Yeah, you gotta wait. You gotta uh, wait. 
I got some of it. I don't know. Well, he's, he started. I didn't want to stop him. He'll tell you anything you want to know. Okay, let me explain what's going on. First of all, you probably gather that we're getting into a car. You can hear the sound of the doors opening and closing. So the last voice you heard, the one imploring Jim to wait until the camera is rolling to tell the story and gently scolding me for beginning to get it out of Jim, is Benny Goodman. Not the Benny Goodman, who is a preeminent swing band leader emerging in the 1930s, obviously, but a young man still in his 30s who is a musician, producer, podcast host, instrument collector, and YouTube content creator. You'll hear more about him and how we know each other in a moment as well. For now, let's skip forward a couple hours. Here is Jim telling the rest of his story while the cameras are rolling. Oh, just so you know, now is a perfect time to tell him how you met us. This is the time. This is the time. Back in the early 80s, uh, working the police desk, uh, it was a Sunday night snow. Phone rang. Picked the phone up. Called police. And the boy said on the other, Howdy, this is Les Paul. What the frick is Les Paul? So what can I do for you? He goes, Well, I got to get out of my driveway tomorrow morning, and I just want to know if you know of anyone who has a snow plow. Come plow my driveway. I'm like, Well, I said, I got a plow. If it can wait till midnight when I get out, come plow your driveway. Now you gotta understand, I don't know who this guy is, I don't know Les Paul. So I plow his driveway, coming down the driveway, I slide and I go right through his mailbox. I mean, right through. So I got, got out of the car, I'm nervous, you know, just joined the police department. No good deed goes unpunished. Uh-huh. So I go pick the mailbox up and I'm like, what do I do? So I did what any young kid, I took it through further in the woods and left. Okay, in case anything is not clear so far. At this point, Jim is very young. He's just begun a career that will last decades at the Mawa Police Department. While plowing Les's driveway, he accidentally knocks over the mailbox. And that last sentence, which may not be clear, was, I did what any young kid would do. I took it, threw it further in the woods, and left. So I leave. A week later, I'm home here in the old house. The phone rings. So the lady said, I'm at Les Paul's house, and right away my heart sinks. I'm like, the mailbox. Les wants to see you. I'm like, no, 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 it's not a big deal. No, he wants to talk to you about plowing the driveway. So I get talked into it. I go over to the house, and uh, I'm let in, and behind the counter, there's this little old man with a guitar. And he said, uh, howdy, you must be Jim. I'm like, I am. I said, you must be Mr. Paul. As I comes out, shakes my hand. I want to give you something for plowing my driveway. Now, all I want to do is get out of there. He goes, so, I got him. Here's what he does. He goes, I want to give you something. So he gives me these tapes. He goes, this is my music. He goes, I like it, and I want you to have it. Now I'm like, this guy's crazy. It's probably the Nat King Cole music. I'm like, thank you. So I take it, and I turn around, and I leave. He goes, wait, 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 wait. Now I'm like, oh, here comes the mouth. Here he comes. He goes, do you play the guitar? I'm like, no. He goes, uh, hang on. He goes in the back, comes out with a little guitar. Shows me three chords, writes them down on a paper, how to play it. And he said, in a week, come back, show me how to play the guitar. I'm like, all right. So I turn around with the guitar and my tapes. Get to the door. He's like, wait, one more thing. I'm like, here comes the mailbox. <laughs> so I turn around and there's he's holding a bottle of champagne. And he goes, do me a favor. On a very special day, open this bottle of champagne. It's very important. So what's so important? So he takes the sock off it, and as he takes the sock off it, it says, compliments of British Airways, and he wrote a note on it, says, to Jim, from your pal, Les Paul. He goes, a special day open that bottle. I said, what's so big about it? He goes, well, years ago, they came out with a new plane, and they invited everybody to go on the first flight, 
And I said, what plane was that? He said, the um, SS. I said, the Concorde? He goes, fast plane, yeah. He goes, but everybody <laughs> was on it. I was like, like who? He said, everybody. Eric, Jeff, Paul. I'm like, who? He goes, Beck, McCartney, Clapton. Who else? And I'm like, who the hell is this guy? So I leave his house. I go right to the library. Pull out an encyclopedia. And as I open a book, Les Paul, Lester Paulfus, inventor. I said, nah, that ain't him. Go to another one. Les Paul, Lester Paulfus. But I had a picture, and it was him. So I went through every book I could find that night in the library. So the following week when I went back to the house, I had an idea who he was. So I walk in with the guitar, and um, he goes, do you learn your chords? I was like, E-A-D, man, quick, slow down. It's all about the tone, the music, don't go so fast. So he takes the guitar, he's on the other side of the counter, his back's to me. I said, Les, I read about you. I said, everything about you was Gibson. You made their guitar. You did recordings, you did everything with Gibson. Design this, design that. I said, what was with that little Dan, Danny Electro guitar you gave me? He goes, Jimmy, it's pronounced Dan Electro. And Nathan Daniels, the owner of the company, was from Jersey. And uh, he gave it to me, it was a prototype. And it was a gift, and he wanted me to try to improve it. He goes, now I want to give it to you so you can learn to play, and when you're done, you take it and put it under your bed for a rainy day. I said, Les, I can't take this. It belongs in a museum. He goes, it's too late. I said, why? And he turned around. He goes, because I've already got your name on it. That's the guitar behind you. It's on the wall. Oh. Damn. That was the first guitar I ever got wow. from Les, and that was the beginning of a 20, 29-year relationship with Les. What a story so far, huh? Earlier in the episode, I mentioned that Les had this down-home, everyday quality with an aversion to celebrity and all its trappings. I think nothing demonstrates this more than the fact that in the early 80s, he befriends Jim, a local cop on the Mawa police force. Also Joe, who's part of the Mawa fire department. Joe's in the room with us as well. He's just quiet, the proverbial strong silent type, fitting of a local firefighter. And there's one more person in the room with us. You might have noticed him saying, damn, when Jim pointed to the Dan Electro guitar that Les had signed for him. That's Ron Thal. He's better known as Bumblefoot, a ridiculously talented guitar player, Great guy, current member of the band Sons of Apollo, and well-known for playing in one of the pre-reunion versions of Guns N' Roses. So everything you're going to see today so cool. um, is directly from his, his house, from, from him. And every time he gave Joe and I something, he always said, put it under your bed for a rainy day. <laughs> and as the story goes on, you're going to hear um, we do a, a travel and guitar show. Or we do what we do, you get up there, play, we take that on the road where people can play all his stuff, see his things, and, you know, pick up his things. Um, That's kind of where I met him. I, I was, was like, you say, need, you need to stop you doing this, because yeah. this is scaring me. Because it's like, yeah. you know, when your kid goes to the edge of the Grand Canyon to get the picture, mm-hmm. but it's like, could they fall off? Could they ruin the guitar string? With And Joe over there, off camera, it's just stuff. But this is, as far as I'm concerned, this is like the Ark of the Covenant, and this is this is genesis for, for music electric guitar. That's Benny again. You probably recognize his voice by now, him being the type A personality among us. I mentioned earlier that Benny is an avid musical instrument collector, and it was in that capacity that he met Jim and Joe, as he was just explaining. Now, Jim and Joe aren't music guys. This is one of the reasons I think Les was drawn to them and could trust them. All the gifts he'd bestowed upon them, and you've only heard about a few. There's many more. They didn't try to profit off of it. He even gave them permission. He said, save it for a rainy day. Translation, it's okay to sell it if you need to. And they never did. 
Les seemed to recognize that these guys had a lot of character and integrity. And the fact that they weren't music guys meant that they wouldn't be pestering him with questions about what Jimmy Page is really like or bragging to anybody else about knowing Les Paul. However, the fact that they're not musical guys means that they could use a little help dealing with music artifacts that Les left behind and wanted to share with the world. So Benny meets these guys at a music trade show or similar event and offers to help them. I mean, after all, they have loose pages laying around, stray wires, unbound binders... And you can't blame these guys. I mean, this has fell into their lap. This is how Les left everything. And it just needs a little extra care and organization, hopefully from somebody musical. Enter Benny. Perfect. It's right up his wheelhouse. Uh, Benny's also a bit of a mover and a shaker, as you'll see. And uh, he has gathered all of us, plus a cameraman, producer, cinematographer, Kamal, to shoot an episode for his YouTube series, The Neurotic Guitarist. Hi, my name is Benny Goodman, the neurotic guitarist, composer for the band Lost Symphony, and host of the podcast 2020. So that's the intro to Benny's first installment of his Les Paul episode of The Neurotic Guitarist on YouTube. The guitars you hear in the background are being played by myself and Ron Bumblefoot, including one very special Les Paul that you're going to hear much more about. And I just want to point out that the band he mentioned, Lost Symphony, put out an album last year with several guests, including yours truly. I played on a track with several other guitar players, including Marty Friedman and Nuno Betancourt. That is how Benny and I know each other. Now, here's a short clip of Jim as he first appears in the video. Once again, that's myself and Ron playing guitars in the background, jamming on How High the Moon. Met Les Paul in 19, early 1980. Became best friends with him. What you see behind me, in front of you, is all because of, you know, our relationship. But it became evident years later that it wasn't about music. It was about someone that he could talk to and be in a different atmosphere which makes so much sense when you think about it so you're going to hear much more from jim you're going to hear all about that special guitar i mentioned earlier we'll explore more artifacts we'll take a trip to the les paul exhibit at the mawa museum and before we take our break which normally happens on or around the half hour point i just want to mention one more detail about jim that i'm a little bit surprised it's taken me this long to get to because it's quite interesting for one thing, Jim is no longer an official with the Mawa Police Department. These days, he is known as Mayor James Wasaki. Now, I don't mean mayor as in the guy who knows everybody down at the local watering hole, so they call him the mayor. No, I mean the democratically elected mayor of Mawa, New Jersey, as of November 2020. More on that after the break. And I hope you're enjoying this episode on The Great Les Paul. It's so nice to be back at it. As many of you know, I've been on tour for the last month and a half or so. So first off, the tour went great. It was amazing to be back on stage night after night. Many of us had forgotten what it's like to do that after this long period with no live concerts. And the appreciation from the audiences every night was incredible. The majority of the shows were sold out. And all the bands seemed to be in peak form. Of course, this was Testament, Exodus, Death Angel on a tour build as The Bay Strikes Back. And as many of you know, we have a new drummer, one Dave Lombardo, best known for Slayer, 
1.0, but also a lot of other music, including working with uh, one of my favorite musicians, John Zorn. And I spoke to Dave about doing an episode of this show. He's up for it. It's going to happen. That's the good news. We couldn't make it happen on tour because we were all consumed by these shows and getting back into the mode of touring. Now, I had every intention of keeping this going and creating more episodes of the podcast while on tour. But as is often the case with good intentions, things don't always work out as planned. And it wasn't laziness or lack of preparation. I brought podcast equipment with me, microphones, interfaces, MP3 recorders, etc. The problem was finding a quiet place, which practically just does not exist on tour. At least that was the case last time. I'm going to continue to bring my podcast gear with me on tour and hope for better luck in the future. There's a European tour coming up in July. We shall see how that goes. So thanks for bearing with me. We put out some best of episodes in the meantime. It looks like we got some new listeners that hadn't heard those. Thanks to our team at Osiris for getting those together. And there are no local or instrumental shows to announce at the moment. There was supposed to be one at the 55 bar. Sadly, they did not meet their fundraising goals. So we say goodbye to the 55 bar. Please see my Instagram tribute about that. So with so much touring this year, so much time to make up for, I've decided to spend most of this month at home, getting new music together, and working on this podcast. Now let's continue with our tribute to Les Paul. I'll take you downstairs real quick. Quick peek, but we gotta get to the museum. Sure, sure. Yeah, let me know. Let's do it. Take me out. Thank you. Okay, that is moments after I first walked into the home of Jim, whom I can now refer to as Mayor Jim. And as you can hear, Jim's dog is quite excited. All these strangers have gathered in the house. These are all just some of his oh, wow. Some of these cute things he made. And one of his dogs. Boxes. Oh, my God. Wow. Like the original. Oh, yeah. That's I my daughter's side. I would never guess. <laughs> yeah, right? Now, this conversation takes place shortly after we've descended the stairs in the living room and reached the basement bar down below. Now, the upstairs felt completely normal. A typical living room and kitchen in the suburbs could be straight out of a sitcom that takes place in Jersey. But as we head downstairs, we notice the walls are covered with memorabilia. Framed original photos of Les or Les and Mary with friends, including Bing Crosby, gold and platinum discs awarded to Les and Mary for sales in excess of a million or more records, vintage posters, and so much more. This is the first indication that we have entered the de facto House of Les. This was your place? Yeah. It was an old house. I okay. Mean, I, I grew up here. And oh, I okay. I tore it down in 2000 and rebuilt this. But... Most of the stuff sat out in the garage until Joe and I decided what we wanted to do. Every time I stopped. Yeah. basically left all the stuff. Yeah, so yeah. He always said, take it, put it under your bed for a rainy day. <laughs> wow. So that's I mean, I got wow. his, the Dan Electro guitar he gave me. Uh, wow. I mean, the, oh, probably the only Fender 60th anniversary ever signed by Les Paul. Uh-huh. The Les Paul Fender. The Les Paul Fender. He gave it because I said, that's a nice guitar. Here, take it. <laughs> <laughs> That's Joe, the firefighter, man of few words, who was given the Fender signed by Les Paul. We'll, we'll come back here in a little bit once okay. we go to the museum and see all like. Yeah, check out the museum. We have a limited time. They're opening it for you guys. Yeah, they're opening it for you guys. I think I walked by yeah. one guy walking up the steps. That was, what is that Ken, guy? He's, he's opening That's up the, the museum no. for us. 
So I wasn't exactly sure how this day was going to go down, which was part of the idea. There was an element of surprise. On the way from the train to Mayor Jim's house, I passed by the Mawa Museum and noticed it was closed that day. How interesting. And then I saw a guy walking up who looked like he was opening it. Turns out he was opening it for us. Now, in addition to old-time photographs, documents, and other items relating to the history of Mawa, the city, there was a whole corner of the Mawa Museum devoted to less. There are quite a few instruments there that were in Les's possession for a number of years up to the end of his life, including ones he played often. These aren't the priceless historical ones like the log that bounces back and forth between the Smithsonian and the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame as it should. And here's something everybody should know. You can play these guitars. Not every single one, not the most valuable ones, but a few of them. They are rentable. No, you can't take them with you, but you can play them at the museum for a nominal donation to the museum. They've also recreated the original studio setup Les and Mary used to do their hit recordings. There are original microphones, a mixing desk, and most importantly, the original tape machine back when that was a brand new device. They also have the original machine Les used a few years before that to record his instrumental tracks. It's about the size of a Xerox machine in a modern copy center, but clearly from a bygone era. With several turntables, it feels like a distant ancestor of what we now associate with DJs who spin EDM and hip-hop. Here's a bit of Joe and Jim explaining how it worked. This is an old Cadillac flywheel. Uh-huh. This is a microscope you put on here so we could find exactly where he wanted to put the needle on the record. So what he would do, he would he would play, and you know you cut your own record. Not hard to do, but he said when the band left, how do I get the lead? How do I get? So what he do? He'd take his needle, or it's over here, and he'd put it down, and he'd play rhythm. He goes now if I want to play lead, what do I do? So he'd take this and he'd crank it, and it would go down to the end, and he'd play lead. Because how do I play him back? So what he did, he had an idea, played it here, got another needle, played it here, played him back to another lead and sound on sound. <laughs> if he made a mistake, <laughs> if he made a mistake, he had to start all over. The mm. record lover, his first one ever in the world, took him over 500 discs to do it because when mm. he made a mistake, wow. that record's hanging in my office in the, at the mayor's office. And as Jim mentioned, Lover was a pivotal single for Les, his first smash hit under his own name, the first with his new sound. And it's what we heard a quick sample of in the first half, the song with those crazy arpeggios. 500 discs to make that. Oh, my goodness. And as Jim mentioned, the original disc of Lover is hanging up in the mayor's office, which is on our agenda to visit, specifically to say hello to some of his staff who are music fans and put in a request to meet Ron and me. It will be our pleasure, of course, and we'll get to see some more cool, less memorabilia. For now, we're still at the museum, and I'm hearing a little bit more about how Les managed the vinyl record machine. There are a few conversations going on, so you might have to listen closely. Every time, uh, every time the, 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 the belt would hit, every time the joint would hit, it would make a little skip. So he was at the dentist, and you ever see the... I don't know if you're old enough, the old dentist drills, where they had just pulleys and a, and a big endless belt, an endless drive belt. He took a drive belt from a dentist and made it because it didn't have a joint. It was just continuous. So he had that. And then when he was cutting, he would end up with chips. So he took a piece of tubing, flattened it out so it would be like a vacuum. He had a piece of rubber tubing that went from here into here. He filled this with water. 
Mm. And as the water drained out, it would create just enough vacuum to pull the chips off that the lathe was cutting. Mm. And this is all from a man who never finished high school. Right. Yeah. I mean, clearly a genius. Genius is proper word in, in his case. But when we were out in uh, Waukesha a few years back, the school board was actually going to name a school after Les. But half the people said, "How can we name a school after someone who quit school?" Right. <laughs> but. Interesting dilemma. We, we spoke to them, and finally they relented and they named school after him. But Les didn't quit school because. Okay, it starts to get really noisy right there. Guitars are brought out as we're preparing to jam. But Joe goes on to say that Les did not quit school because of academics, it was because of money. The average working wage back then was $15 a week. He was making $15 a night performing as a guitarist in his teens. Keep in mind that this wasn't too long after the Great depression, which Les and his family, like so many other Americans, had struggled through. Suddenly, Les found himself in a position to support his own parents and put money away for the future. Les knew all too well about the notion of saving for a rainy day, so it's no coincidence that he would use that term so often with Joe and Jim later on in his life. In the factory? Oh, I love, I love what Les did with the crazy switches. Yeah, but I mean... Gibson would never... He also out. never had the binding, too. Binding. So if you look at it, it's like you're never going to see a custom without binding. It's weird. Feel his name. Well, you'll find customs with binding, but you won't find a right. made for less with binding. This but is yeah. really his yes. thing. Yeah. Oh, that's his guitar. That's the one yeah. when he came oh, back yeah. and said, we're, we're not broken up anymore with Gibson. And that's their makeup guitar. Look at the back of the headstock. It doesn't even have a serial number on it. All right. It should be obvious what's going on. But just in case, I am holding a guitar that lives at the Mawa Museum. The makeup guitar. You see, Les and Gibson had had a big falling out in the early 60s, one of his many challenges of that period. A few we alluded to earlier, such as divorce from Mary, getting dropped from Capitol Records, and health issues. But by 1968, the Gibson Corporation and Les patched things up, and this guitar was an olive branch and a token of their renewed friendship. It's a great instrument. Yeah. First pancake body Les Paul custom too, and we had no, it. That's a good we thing had it in the museum thing, out in Chattanooga, yeah, Tennessee, and uh, we said we want it to be on display, not behind glass. And the guy said, "No, no." This guy said, "No." We'll put it. So they put it on a pedestal. Two weeks later, I get the call. Oh, come on, we got a problem with your guitar. So what happened? They fly us down. Joe and I go. They open it. They had it on a pedestal, like this. Right above it was an AC unit, and it dripped and got the paint. Oh. So he sent it back to Gibson to get the lacquer to read here. I said, would you redo it? He goes, hell no, that's a hell of a story. Okay, I think that should be clear, but just in case, Jim was explaining how before this guitar was in its present home at the Mawa Museum, it was in another museum in Chattanooga. There, it had been in an open display placed a little bit too close to an air conditioning unit. Jim and Joe received a panicked call from the museum, flew down to Chattanooga, and took the guitar to Gibson. I imagine this would be the Gibson Custom Shop, which is also in Tennessee, but Nashville. There, the repair people fixed the lacquer and uh, took a look at the paint job and decided it wasn't worth repainting the guitar. It was a minor repair. And besides, they loved the story. Then just before that, Benny was explaining how this guitar is the very first pancake body Les Paul. What that means is that the body is constructed with layers of mahogany and a maple top as opposed to one solid slab of mahogany, which is how all Les Pauls had been made up to that point. That amplifier right in front of you is the amplifier that Leo Fender gave Les, the music man. 
Which one? That's that one right here. Oh, wow. Because also, we have, this is the be the amp of his bedroom. Kitchen. Kitchen. One more time. Wow. So if somebody gets the Leo Fender amp and someone gets the kitchen amp. I think you heard that. Somebody gets the Leo Fender amp and somebody gets the kitchen amp. I should explain that these are both great old amps. The one that Les kept in his kitchen is one of those early Gibsons, and it has a single speaker, just like the old Fender that was gifted to Les from Mr. Fender. Ron and I will end up switching off between one amp and the other, and we will also end up trading off guitars. Now, we've already described one guitar, Les's makeup guitar, courtesy of Gibson in 1968 with the pancake body. Now it's time to talk about the other guitar. I refer you to Benny's YouTube channel, The Neurotic Guitarist, a short clip from one of the newest episodes, The House That Les Built, episode number one, The G5, featuring Bumblefoot and Alex Golnick. I started believing in the universe when I found this guitar because the level of synchronicities, it's almost unexplainable. Statistically, it's beyond improbable. And all I can think of is that Les Paul somewhere is smiling. Okay, so I think right there you're hearing me on the 68 playing melody and Ron playing rhythm on the special guitar that we are talking about. As the music plays on, the video cuts to a scene that took place before either of us had arrived in Mawa. Here is Benny showing Jimmy this mystery guitar for the first time. Oh my God. I think it's wow. it, man. Wow. I'm pretty sure that that's the one. Wow. Wow. Boy, that's Les's work, I could tell you that. Oh man, right? This is Les That's, that's this it. Is, this is definitely... I mean, I, I gotta tell just... you. Okay, where to begin with the story of this guitar? First of all, one can only imagine the amount of Gibson Les Pauls that have been in the hands of Les Paul himself over the years. Where are they now? Well, he gave away quite a few during his lifetime. Some went to charity, some went to friends and relatives. We know the 68 and a few others went to Jim and Joe. It seems there were auctions and donations after he passed away, according to his wishes. And I don't know for sure, but it seems likely that you might find some of Les's guitars in places like the Rock Hall of Fame, the Gibson Showroom, the Hard Rock Cafe, and places like that. Yet of all the Les Pauls owned by Les over the years, it seems there were very few from the time before the guitar was put into production. These would have been the prototypes that Gibson sent to Les and then he would work on himself, partly as suggestions they might make and partly just to suit his own preferences. So out of this extremely rare batch of Les's Les Paul prototypes in the early 1950s, there was one that seems to have gotten away. Jim remembers Les playing this guitar and it had very specific pickups and a very specific case. Les ended up removing the pickups and being the generous guy he is, gave the guitar away. To whom? Nobody remembers. What we do know is Les kept a copious amount of notes. These notes are part of the mountain of belongings that he passed along to Jim and Joe. In those notes, he describes a guitar he was working on before the Les Paul was put into production. It was the fifth prototype, so he labeled it G5, and it matches the description of the guitar Jim witnessed him play and the guitar in front of us today. When I pick it up, it freaks me out. There's very few instruments that I pick up and I play and I go, oh, that, that scares me. 
Yeah, and this scares me. Yeah, there's nothing. If you were to bring us the gifts, I think they'd pass out. In case you didn't catch that, that was Mayor Jim telling Benny, if you want to bring this to Gibson, I think they'd pass out. This guitar, I believe to be the genesis of Les Paul's electric guitar. In his own ledgers, he refers to it as the G5 prototype Les Paul Professional Roadshow. So by now it should be clear, Benny recovered Les Paul's G5 prototype. How? Well, it was on Reverb the online used gear marketplace based in Chicago. And they happen to be friends of mine. I've done a few playing videos for Reverb, including a very recent one. Here's a few more details. Well, you didn't even know what I bought. I, I said, I got a Les Paul online. You looked at me and, and I like, said, the white uh, one? I said, does it have a case? Uh -huh. He showed me the case. I said, yeah, that's oh, it. Oh, that's it. He goes, how do you know? I said, because there's only two of those cases in the world and I got the other one. Why was it being sold online? Well, they, they didn't believe they, it. They, they didn't think it was, they didn't guy, think it so was the real So this guy found okay. it. And he thought it was a 1958, so he restored it like one of the 15 1958s with these Wally Carmen pickups, which are uh -huh. like 10 grand by themselves. But they're the wrong pickups. Oh, wow. And when he got it and he restored it, everyone that saw it and thought it might be the Ark of the Covenant said, why would you fucking touch the Ark of the Covenant? Uh -huh. Why would you put pickups in it? Nevertheless, the wrong pickups. So no one wanted to touch it. It was uh -huh. 300 grand. Sat for two wow. years. When I called the dude, he had like PTSD. Because he's like, don't tell me it's not real. He was all yeah. angry. Like, huh. can you, will you take $49,000 uh, for it? Uh. And he's like, fine. And they sent it to me, and the case is worth probably a hundred grand. Yeah. So, oh like, there's God. that. This seems to be a common occurrence in the world of collectible guitars. I'm struck by how closely that story resembles the one told by Kirk Hammett on Dean Del Rey's podcast, which Dean let us use for our Peter Green episode. Very similarly, Greeny sat around for a couple years. In that case, everybody knew what it was, but still, the owner wanted too much money. I think it was like two million dollars. Now, Kirk has some pretty deep pockets, but he doesn't want to spend that kind of money on a guitar just out of principle. Yet he agrees to take a look at it just as a favor to his guitar dealer friend who's a liaison between him and Greeny's owner. And we don't know what happened. Maybe the guy was facing a default payment on a loan or some kind of foreclosure. Whatever it was, he needed cash now. <laughs> so Kirk was able to take over Greeny for less than half of the original asking price. And it seems like a parallel situation to Benny taking over what would turn out to be Les Paul's long lost G5 professional roadshow. I'm sure I'm wrong, but uh, just from some of the, the grooves going this way in the wood between the frets that he was filing by hand, doing it this way, getting super flat. Oh, oh yeah, he, he only played them flat, so he filed down all yeah. of these frets himself. That was Ron with an astute observation about Les's fret work. Then he calls me and he shows, he's like, what do you think? Oh. I said, uh, no big deal. It doesn't have the original pickups. He goes, yeah, it doesn't. I said, I know where they are. He goes, where? They're yeah. hanging on my wall. Everyone's in here. Oh, wow. Oh, my perfect. God. Hey. Oh, hand, hand wound by Les. Amazing. Wow. I can't believe those are the original pickups. Look at those motherfuckers. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, those are like, so back in. Are those like the first, among the first humbuckers? I, right? You know what it is? I don't. Those do those are technically like P90s. No. I don't. Those do are staple uh, Alnico no. pickups. Those are the rarest. Like a proto. Yeah, they're, 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 they uh, are prototypes not like. They there are, are pictures of that guitar. With there are pickups. prototypes that are real, much bigger and cruder that he has, but they wouldn't be in the guitar. Those would have been in this guitar in 1950. He, he changed them around a bunch of the guitars. Uh, so we're going to restore this guitar with those pickups. And less made pickups if you can read I don't even know if it works, but Black we'll see. red. Yeah. That's from Jimmy Black Page's guitar. Jimmy Page. Yep. Yeah, no big deal. <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> and right there, we're in Jim's house. He has a whole collection of pickups. Some of them have handwriting on them. It's obviously less his writing, indicating which guitars the pickups go to, and in some cases, which artists they go to. That one is from Jimmy Page, obviously. And now let's hear one more clip from our time at the museum. That's Ron. He can also sing with great range. We've switched guitars. Now you'll hear me play blues licks on Les's G5. Okay, that video was just posted to Benny's channel if you want to hear the whole song. It's not perfect. I don't know it. I love the Beatles. Never played that song. Ron just threw it out. But we have a nice informal jam. And I have to say that G5 has magic or mojo or whatever you want to call it. It's one of those guitars that just seems like it plays itself. One more thought on the G5 from Benny's video. This guitar sat in someone's basement of a recording studio, mummified for 40 years, shrouded in mystery. Why would it be there? How did it get there? Why did it not have the pickups in it? Where did they go? They're on Jimmy's wall. Uh, pretty amazing when you think about it. As we start to wrap up this episode, let's hear a little bit more from Mayor Jim. Les always told me he was gonna write a book and uh, I never saw him do any notes or anything in 29 years, 28 years. So one day he goes, says, come on over, I got something. So I get Joe, we go over to the house. There's five big boxes. He goes, it's here. So what? He goes, my book. I'm like, you actually wrote a freaking book. So I open a box and this, there, were, there were 10 in each box that there were 50 of them. He goes, these are the author's proofs. I promised you the very first copy, I'm giving it to you. I said, Les, that's so cool. So he opens it up just like this. Here's a book and it's a wow. coffee table. Comes in, comes out like this. And if you look at the first page, it's got a authenticity page, right? Wow. And he wrote on it, to Jim, thanks for being my dearest friend, Rhubarb. That was his name back in the Rhubarb day. Rhubarb right. bread, yeah. So he's looking at it, he signs it, and he goes, Jimmy, I made a mistake. I said, what do you mean you made a mistake? He goes, I promised you the first copy. He goes, I gave you the last copy, number 50. I'm like, yes, I know what you meant. He's like, no, 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 no. So he turns around, and he goes in, and he hands me this. He goes, I promised you the first copy. Here it is. His handwritten notes. So right here, Jimmy pulls out sections of Les's handwritten manuscript and hands it to us. This is it. Fuck. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> like, and when he handed it to me, he's like, uh, "You'll, I know you'll take good care." I always get like tears in my eyes. This, like I'm like watching like one of those commercials this where you're supposed. It's like yeah, I can't even believe it. Like, it's awesome. Yeah, and it's the like first the thing, Lincoln I would like to dedicate this book to my mother. Well, look at the oxidation on the page. It's like, you can't, uh, it's like Murphy line in this. Like okay, right there, we got a little excited. We were talking over each other. But you might have heard me say, this is like holding the Lincoln Diaries. By the way, at this point, we're back at Jim's place after visiting the office of the mayor, who is Jim. And that was after our time at the Mawa Museum. Now let's go to a different area of the house. Here, Jim has a couple machines that belong to Les. After all his experiments recording on discs, things were made much easier with the advent of these tape machines. Single track. And Les took it on the road, as did Bing all the time. They had, there were only 10 of them made in the United States. Bing contracted Ampex to take the technology from the uh, military guys who brought it back from France. And they made this machine. 
and it was a single track, but Les said, listen, if I can do what I did with the record, sound on stuff, why can't I do it with this? So what he did is he got an extra tape head and drilled it into it. And he had Mary sing into the microphone, hello, 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 one, two, three, when he played it back. So what Jim's referring to here is hello, hello, hello in harmony. Hello, 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 but together. Now, there's a very good demonstration of this on Les and Mary's old radio show. Les and Mary pretend that this is an invention of Les's with lots of buttons and knobs. Each one changes the pitch, adds a harmony, or some other effect. Now, on the one hand, it's true that Les is the inventor who discovered how to get these sounds. What's not true is that they are manipulated by buttons and knobs in an instant on a mysterious device called the Les Pulverizer. In reality, they are pre-recorded on these early Ampex tape machines, which is still impressive, but maybe not as suited for a primetime broadcast across America in the 50s. Mary Ford, you get up here this minute with my pulverizer. Okay, I'm coming up. I didn't know you were looking for me. Les. How corny can you get? And Mary, quit twisting those dials. What happens if I turn this dial? What? What'd you say? I was gonna say, leave that dial alone. Your voice is definitely too high. Oh, me. Well, hello, Amos. Where's Andy? Mary, I'm telling you, you're going to bust something. Hey, here's one I haven't tried. Mary! Would you repeat that? Mary! What is it, Jack? (laughs) All right, it's a little outdated, but fun. I believe that's a reference to Jack Benny. There was a reference to Amos and Andy. And uh, the whole thing fits with the style of the most popular sitcom of the time, I Love Lucy. Here's Jim again. The it's Wally the box. Now, Wally came in with his brother-in-law married to uh, Mary's sister, and he made this box. It's an actual mixer. Those are the same pickups. Yeah. Wally is the guy who made the pickups yeah. that are in the, yeah. the white guitar. Yeah, mm. yeah that's, that's, the, that's where it all started right here. That's the actual setup. This here, obviously, I don't need to tell you, that's the very world's first eight-track recorder. Uh, came from California, brought up, put together in Mala. Um, Les didn't like some things for it. They sent it back, brought it back. And there's two of the tubs. The other tub is in my garage. You'll see it later. And the wall panels, when Les wanted sound in his studio, he didn't want walls like this because it was dead sound. So he built these panels and stuck them throughout his studio. And he was so excited. There's over 10,000 panels in his studio. And when he played, it was the same dead sound. He was so disappointed. He didn't know why. A couple weeks later, he was in the kitchen doing dishes. And he's got the sponge and he, the water's gone. He realized the water soaked into the sponge, just like sound soaked into the pine. It was soft. So what he did is he went around with a brush and he varnished. If you look on it, you can still see the drops. He just covered it in varnish. And when he played, it bounced. And that was it. It's wild. Um, That's crazy. So brilliant. So at this point, we take a walk for about a minute upstairs and outside to Jimmy's garage. There, it reminds me of backstage at a Broadway show. There are several racks of clothing, countless storage bins, and a few giant tubs, records, reel-to-reel tapes, and so much more. So um, this was 1989. He gives me this tub. So I take, I put it in my garage. You know, sat there forever and ever. New house in 2000, built this house. So my garage becomes my man cave. I told my wife, this is it. I got my Les Paul stuff in here. Mm-hmm. You got your horse stuff on the right. And so one day we walk into the garage and we're going to straight, straight, we're going straight ahead. So one day we 
we go into I just have to build a garage. If you see on the right is all her stuff, her stuff, all my Les Paul stuff. I love how it smells in here. Right? One of the state machines. Smells like the library. Um his jackets. Uh yeah, this is his Miller Light jacket. This is a jacket our police department gave him. This is Les's when he did the course light commercial, course commercial. This is his coat. This is a jacket that came from Gibson for less. Um, just so many things. So now the tape machine was sitting in here, right? In 2000, 1989, it comes to the house. Just sat out in the elements. There's no door on the garage, nothing. So I built a house in 2000 and my man cave. I got my Les Paul, she got her horses. I got my workbench. Life's good. So 2000, I guess it was 14 after Les dies. Died in 2009. 2009. So we're here. I come in the garage, and you think I have eight horses? We have one horse. More <laughs> blank. In that closet, I had to build a saddle room. Can for saddles. So I come in here in 2014. So she comes up. She goes, "What are you doing?" I'm like, "When are you going to clean this up?" She goes, "Well, what are you going to do with all your Les Paul stuff?" I'm like, "Well, you know, it's going to go to the museum. What are you doing with the tape machine?" Now this tape machine sits in here. Right? It's been there for you know since we built the house. So he goes, what are you going to do with the tape machine? I'm like, well, you know, I don't know. Obviously, it's got to go into a museum somewhere down the road. I said, well, why don't you pull it out, and we'll clean up and get it ready to take out. So she goes to pull it, and she pulls it. And you see the tape? The door was taped shut, and I never... So she pulled it, and the door opened. Mm. And what she find inside? She goes, what the hell is that? I'm like, I don't know. I come around, and I start crying. The mailbox, I knocked over. Oh, I could stop Amazing, huh? In case that's not clear, Jimmy pulls out an old mailbox. And in case anyone needs reminding, this is how Mayor Jim, in his previous incarnation as the newly minted Officer Jimmy on the Mawa Police Force, first met Les. He'd answered the call to plow Les's driveway, knocked over the mailbox, being young and confused, threw it further into the woods. And keep in mind, Les lived in one of those houses where the nearest neighbor isn't right next door. And with so many trees around, it seemed entirely plausible the mailbox would never be found. But Les had it all along. <laughs> and that's why it was so important for him for me to have this. Wasn't there mail in there? Yeah, there was mail in it. He put mail like in some it. Ba- some bills. So he something. knew all he knew all those years that I'd not go to his mailbox. But that's the relationship we had. That was just it. And it, ah. it was so... <laughs> It's just one of those. <laughs> like, the last he got the last. He got, one. You know what? You're absolutely right. He, he got, got the last. He got the uh, That was definitely an I got you. Yeah. <laughs> Incredible, huh? It's as though Les managed to prank his old friend, who was much younger, from the afterlife. And whatever your thoughts are on the afterlife, science, randomness, and coincidence, it's hard not to at least think about Les playing a part from beyond in the recovery of his long-lost white prototype guitar. And here's another thought. For as inspiring as Les was, first as a musician, then as an inventor, as an all-around creative person, I think he also set a really good example for all of us on never forgetting who you are and where you came from. Think about this. Les was part of a golden age of radio, television, and especially recordings. Yet as he rose through the ranks in Chicago, then New York, then Hollywood, he never forgot that he was Lester Polfus from Waukesha. 
and he chose to remain less from Mawa. He could have chosen to live out his later years in an upscale enclave of Southern California. Weekly dinners with the Sinatras, cocktail parties hosted by Liz Taylor and whoever her husband happened to be at the time. He stays in Mawa, and who does he choose to be his closest friends and confidants? Our pals Jim and Joe, the local cop and local fireman, one of whom is now the mayor. One can only imagine Les would be so proud. He'd also be calling the mayor's office with frequent regularity and phony complaints just to tease him and keep him on his toes. With the final thought for now, here's Mayor Jim. When I took him to the hospital for the last time, you know, him and I, I went into the bedroom and he was sleeping. He was, he was very sick. And he opened his eyes and he said, sit down, patted me on, patted the bed, said, sit down, let's talk. He said, you remember the night that I called and and I found you. I'm like, yeah, you needed someone to plow your driveway. He said, no. I said, what do you mean, no? He goes, I had a guy to plow my driveway. I said, then why'd you call, him, call the police? He goes, because I was looking for you when I found you. And he patted me on the shoulder and said, thank you. Wow, what a story. I am completely knocked out. And there's so much more too. I'm not sure if it makes sense to do a whole sequel episode or just bonus content. We will see. By the way, Ron and I each received gifts from Les's stockpile, for which we're very grateful, including a pedal, a cable, his strings, some records, and more. Huge thanks to Mawa's mayor, Jim Wasaki, Joe, Benny Goodman, who made this all happen. And it was a pleasure to share this experience with my dude, Ron Bumblefoot Thaw. Be sure to visit Jim and Joe online on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram under the name Les Paul in Mawa. It tells what they're up to, is run in coordination with the Mawa Museum, and has lots of cool tributes to Les. Special thanks to the folks at the Mawa Museum. Pay them a visit if you can. Visit Benny's page, The Neurotic Guitarist, and keep an eye out for Les's G5 Roadshow guitar. Moods and Modes is presented by Osiris Media, hosted and produced by yours truly, Alex Skolnick. Production for Osiris by Kirsten Cluthy and Brad Stratton. Final edits and mixes by Justin Thomas of Revoice Media. All the original music you heard is by yours truly on this track, joined by Matt Zabrowski on the drums and Nathan Peck on the bass. Artwork by Mark Dowd. Final thanks to the great Les Paul, And thank you for listening. You can support this podcast directly by going to patreon.com slash Alex Skolnick or indirectly by telling friends or leaving us a review. And whatever you do, please hit subscribe. Thank you so much once again, and we'll see you on the next episode. Hey, listeners. I want to tell you about the April-May 2023 issue of Relics Magazine. Features a Dave Matthews Band cover story with additional articles and interviews with The National, Graham Nash, Wayne Shorter, ALO, Ivan Neville, our friend Eric Krasno and Stanton Moore, Marty Stewart, and much more. Check out the latest version of Relics and subscribe now at relics.com slash DMB. Thanks, Relics. Osiris. Hey nerds, I'm Sarah, the Paper Nerd, and if you've ever wondered what goes into that greeting card you just sent or received, well, quite a lot. Get your paper fix on the Paper Fold, where I host an enchanting mix of personalities and players all nerding out on my favorite topic.
topic, stationery. From the designs of our snail mail communications to the precious space created when two people correspond, there's a lot to cover. So come grab a seat in the stationery community's only five-star paper salon, The Paperfold, now part of the Evergreen Podcast Network.